Well, good morning. My name is Mark Hoffman. I'm director of worship, one of the elders here, and it's a privilege to open the word together this morning. So before we do that, let me just pray. Lord, we meet here today to be in your presence and to hear from you, to be with you and to hear from you from your word, to hear your voice, to hear your truth, and to be shaped by the truth of your word and to know you more. And so, God, we just pray that you would do that today through your word for us today. And we just pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the city was buzzing. The people had been looking forward to this celebration for a long time, and now all the preparations had been made, and people had traveled from miles around to be in the city for the celebration. Extended families gathered up their kids, aunts and uncles, grandmas and grandpas, all to make the trek together to the heart of the city. People were everywhere lining the streets, and the energy pulsing through the crowds was palpable. And the year is 2016, and the city is Chicago, and the Cubs have just won the World Series. <laughs> Maybe some of you were there. It had been 108 years since the last championship for the Cubs. So this was a big deal. To put it in perspective, my grandmother was a die-hard Cubs fan. I inherited her Chicago Cubs Christmas ornament that goes on our Christmas tree every year. And she lived a relatively long and full life, and yet she lived an entire life and went from cradle to grave without ever having seen her beloved Cubs win a World Series. So Cubs fans everywhere, as you can imagine, were ecstatic. They just had to be there in Chicago for this victory parade. And the turnout was unbelievable. They say, now I don't know how they know this, but they say that this was the seventh largest gathering of human beings in the history of the planet. The atmosphere was electric. It was filled with a sense of long-awaited triumph and uncontainable joy. Now, the events of Palm Sunday in Jerusalem weren't probably exactly quite on that scale. But it gives us the sense of the feel at that time in the city of Jerusalem. The crowds of people all having traveled to be in the city for this shared experience of a celebration with so many of them lining the sides of the road and shouting in triumphant joy as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Now, before we dig deeper into the text from Matthew 21, we want to set the scene just a little bit more. The celebration that drew the large crowds to Jerusalem was the Jewish Passover. This is the feast that God himself had instituted for the Israelites way back in the Old Testament. And it was a way of commemorating the deliverance of God's people from slavery in Egypt. And their salvation that God made possible by the plague of the firstborn. And if you remember the story back in Exodus. And the ten plagues. The Passover gets its name from the tenth and final plague. 
where God declared that all of the firstborn in Egypt would die. But God told the Israelite families to each slaughter a lamb without blemish and put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you. So God spared his people from death and subsequently delivered them from bondage in Egypt. The Lord told the Israelites that they should remember this deliverance throughout all their generations as an annual feast to the Lord. So this is the Passover. It's a celebration of God's freedom and his deliverance. And it was one of the great pilgrimage feasts celebrated by the Jews with huge crowds making their way to Jerusalem to participate. Thousands of people would travel to Jerusalem, and it was thought that the city's population during this feast would double or triple or even quadruple in size. So it's at this time that Jesus and his disciples are making their way up from Jericho toward Jerusalem and into the center of all this activity. Now, Jericho was about a day's journey from Jerusalem, and when it says in the Bible that they were going up to Jerusalem, they really were going up. And you can see it in this elevation map here. With Jericho, it's at 720 feet below sea level, and then you can see that Jerusalem is 2,450 feet above sea level, so that trek They were literally ascending. And while this ascent going up, it's quite literal, I I think the climb and elevation matches the, the building drama and the sense of anticipation in this narrative as Jesus is nearing Jerusalem for all the events that are about to take place during Holy Week. And Jesus knew that this would be his last trip to Jerusalem with his disciples. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 17, just before this, it says Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the last day, on the third day. By this point in Matthew's gospel, this is the third time that Jesus has told his disciples what was about to take place. And this time Jesus spoke about his death and his resurrection in the clearest of terms. His earthly mission was about to be accomplished. And then, moving on in Matthew 20, verse 29, tells us that as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. No doubt there were great crowds following because Jesus had performed many miracles. And in fact, in all four of the Gospels, the triumphal entry of Jesus is preceded by miracles. In Matthew and Mark and Luke, the so-called synoptic gospels because they are seeing things together. Uh, Jesus heals a blind beggar on the way. And according to John's gospel, Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. 
So it's not surprising Jesus would have people following him as he makes his way to Jerusalem, especially when you consider that all of this is happening during the pilgrimage to the Passover while thousands of other people are traveling to Jerusalem. So you put all of this together and you can imagine the hustle, the bustle of the scene and the buzz that's swirling around Jesus as he makes his way with his disciples up to Jerusalem. Now, in today's story of the triumphal entry, it's fascinating to observe this dynamic activity of the scene. And we'll dig deeper into all that's happening as we see Jesus riding on a donkey and surrounded by people shouting and waving branches. But really, all of us leads us, all, all of it, it leads us to that question. It leads us to that critically important question that is stirred among the people of Jerusalem. As Jesus enters the city and they say, who is this? Who is this? So as we walk through the narrative today in Matthew 21, we want to continually have this question in front of us. Who is this Jesus? As a preaching team, we've been preaching through the gospel of Matthew for the past several months. And We've had to skip way ahead here to land at the events of Holy Week. Sorry, we just didn't move fast enough, so we had to skip way ahead. But it's important, I think, to review where we've come so far and maybe a little bit of what we skipped. So who does Matthew say Jesus is? Well, as we saw back in chapter 4, we saw Jesus ministry characterized by preaching and teaching and healing, I think we can summarize really most of what we're skipping over today by saying that in the chapters between the Sermon on the Mount and here the triumphal entry, he's been preaching and teaching and healing. And all of that preaching and teaching and healing has served to authenticate the identity of Jesus Christ. Let's remember that the focus from the very beginning of this gospel of Matthew has been the identity of Jesus Christ. From chapter 1, we saw Jesus identified as the son of David, the son of Abraham. We see him identified as the Christ or the Messiah, the anointed chosen one of God. He was proclaimed by angels and foretold by prophets as Emmanuel, God with us who came to save his people from their sins. He was identified by wise men as the king of the Jews, testified by God the Father himself to be the very son of God. This is who Matthew says Jesus is. And so this brings us to our passage today, Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. And it says, When they drew near to Jerusalem, And came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. An interesting feature in the Gospel of Matthew is that 
as an account that is intended to testify to the identity of Jesus, much of the time throughout the narrative, it seems like Jesus wants to keep his identity somewhat hidden. It's what some have called the messianic secret. Jesus already had large numbers of people following him around, and it's thought that maybe he didn't want to attract a crowd just to watch him do the miracles, like reducing his ministry to a traveling magic show or something. He miraculously healed the diseased and the blind, and then he would order them to not tell anyone. He even asked his own disciples in Matthew chapter 16, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers in verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then the text goes on to say that Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one that he was the Christ. Perhaps we could say that Jesus was managing the message of his mission. But what's clear here as he enters Jerusalem is that Jesus is no longer concealing his identity as the Messiah King. He is very publicly and very intentionally declaring it. Jesus sends his disciples to retrieve a donkey and her colt so that he can fulfill messianic prophecy right before the people's eyes. He wants them to know who he is. He wants them to see that he is the Messiah pictured in this prophecy. And so Matthew quotes this prophecy for us. He says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now this is actually combining a couple of different prophecies together. The first part is taken from Isaiah 62. As we read these words of prophecy, we will start to hear the heart of the gospel emerge. And we'll discover more about who Jesus is. So listen to Isaiah's words here in Isaiah 62, starting in verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be turned desolate. But you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries his young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And in verse 10, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth, and now here's the quote, Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him, and they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Here we see the heart of the gospel. 
the love of God for his people displayed like a groom rejoicing over his bride, like a father caring for his beloved daughter. God's people are not forsaken. They are sought out by him to be redeemed and made holy through the promise of righteousness and salvation. Righteousness and salvation that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And he did so by being perfectly righteous, by living the perfect life that we could never live. And now by faith in him alone, we can cover our filthy rags and be clothed with the holy righteousness of Christ. So that when God looks on us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees Christ's righteousness. In the words of the classic hymn, when he shall come with trumpet sound, O may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. So who is this? Who does Isaiah say Jesus is? He says, behold, this is the promised Messiah. The one who comes and seeks out his people, bringing with him righteousness and salvation. So back to our text, Matthew 25, 21 verse 5 says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The rest of this prophetic statement is taken from Zechariah chapter 9. And again, as we read these prophetic words, we want to learn more about who Jesus is. We want to learn more about the gospel. So beginning in verse 9 of Zechariah 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Just like in the real life scene happening in Jerusalem, here we see shouting and rejoicing. And why? Because the king is coming. The king is coming. And again, just like in Isaiah, we see that he comes with righteousness and he comes with salvation. And what else do we see? We see a king that is humble. And he comes in peace. King Jesus doesn't come draped in royal garb, riding into the city on a war horse. No, this king comes in humility, riding on the foal of a donkey. And it's not even his donkey. He had to borrow it. This king is not rich, and powerful according to earthly 
standards because his kingdom is not of this world. This king is humble and lowly, bringing righteousness and salvation to his people. And as it says here in Zechariah, through a covenant in blood to set the prisoners free. How appropriate for Jesus Christ to come during the Passover. At the commemoration of God's mercy and deliverance of his people through a sacrifice of innocent blood. And these people don't know it, but Jesus is coming to be that sacrifice. As the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 2 about Jesus, he says, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. So who is this? Who does Zechariah say Jesus is? Jesus is the humble king. Bringing righteousness and salvation to his people, coming to make peace through the covenant made in his own blood on the cross. Let's move on, Matthew 21, verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. You'll remember from that elevation map we saw that the Mount of Olives, it actually stands a bit above Jerusalem itself, so you can imagine this throng of people. You can see this is the route he may have taken. You can imagine this throng of people surrounding Jesus. He's slowly making his way, riding on a donkey, And they're on this road that crests on the ridge of the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem. And this would have him and the crowd coming over the top of the Mount of Olives revealing a spectacular view of the shining white walls and buildings of the temple and the palace next to it and the city spread out around it. And it's from this vantage point that Luke records Jesus weeping over the city. Saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. So from here overlooking Jerusalem, in all of its splendor, Jesus riding on a donkey slowly descends down through the valley and then up into the gates of the city. 
And don't forget, there's a sea of humanity swirling around Jesus right now. They spread their cloaks on the road as a way of showing honor and indicating their submission beneath him as king. And they spread out tree branches on the road as well, which is a common way of expressing victory in Israel. There are people behind him, following him as he makes his way. There are people in front of him, probably many of them running out from the city to greet him. And the people are shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The word Hosanna is a Hebrew cry to the Lord. Which essentially means save now. Or save us, we pray. And as the people are shouting these words, they're shouting words from Psalm 118. The words of this psalm were traditionally used by the people in their worship and their celebration related to the Passover feast and other feasts as well. And now the people are shouting these words over Jesus as they acknowledge him as the promised Messiah King. Let's listen to what Psalm 118 has to say about who Jesus is. It begins this way. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Then skipping to verse 14. Now we start to hear some familiar words again. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then here's the people's cry. Of Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Righteousness, salvation, covenant sacrifice, rejoicing. There's so much overlap between this psalm and the prophets. And the heart of the gospel is everywhere in the psalm. So we come back to the question, who is this Jesus? The words of Psalm 118 reinforce everything the prophets have said. He's the promised Messiah. 
coming to his people, seeking them out with righteousness and salvation. He is the one rejected by the very ones who ought to have embraced him, and yet he becomes the cornerstone, the foundation of redemption for his people. Shining the light of salvation on the people through a covenant sacrifice, an expression of the Lord's great love, causing his people to rejoice in all that he has done for them. This is Jesus. This is the Jesus of Psalm 118. And so our passage in Matthew today ends this way. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So the city of Jerusalem is stirred up because of Jesus. It's not the first time it's happened. It brings to mind the visit of the Magi way back at Christmas time. When Herod and all of Jerusalem were troubled because these wise men came to the city asking, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? Well, now that king has arrived. And the whole city is stirred up once again, and they're asking, who is this? So who do the crowds say Jesus is? As the people are rejoicing and proclaiming him to be the promised Messiah king, they answer, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Which, after everything we've explored from scripture today, it feels strangely incomplete, doesn't it? That's all they had to say? Now, realistically, for all these festival goers proclaiming Hosanna as Jesus entered the city, there were likely also many who were skeptical. Um, Probably the very ones who were asking the question, who is this? Like, who is this guy? And of course, there are the Pharisees and the scribes, and they'd been outraged at Jesus for a long time now. And they doubted his claims, and they sought to destroy him. And even those praising Jesus here while they hail him as the promised Messiah King, they're celebrating the coming of the King that they want him to be. There was great expectation at this time that the Messiah would come and throw off the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire and reestablish the kingdom of David. This is the kind of salvation that many were seeking. But as we know from the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, this king came to save his people from their sins. D.A. Carson writes this, Even where Jesus was perceived, however dimly, as King Messiah, he was not perceived as the suffering servant. And the expectations of the day was fairly easy for the crowd after hearing Jesus preaching and seeing his miracles to ascribe messiahship to him, as much in their hope as in conviction. But it was far harder for them to grasp the inevitability of his suffering and death in the expansion of the people of God beyond the Jewish race. In other words, he's saying the people expected a king, but they didn't expect a king on the cross. The people expected a savior for God's people, but they didn't expect 
spiritual salvation from sin. Nor did they expect God's people to include people from every nation and tribe and tongue to the ends of the earth. Jesus didn't come to meet their expectations. He came to meet their greatest need. He came to save his people from their sins. But as these popular expectations are not met, and as one man from Jesus' inner circle betrays him, and as the Pharisees exert their influence over the people, we know that the cries of Hosanna in just a few short days will turn to cries of crucify him. Crucify him. And Jesus Christ, who came to reveal himself to his people as their king, will show himself to be the suffering servant, the ultimate Passover sacrifice. His shed blood on the cross, purchasing forgiveness and freedom for all who place their faith in him. The question that we've been confronted today then, who is this? Who is this Jesus? We've seen in the Palm Sunday narrative that Jesus came to his people on that day to clearly reveal to them who he is. Jesus wants people to know him. So we must know Jesus. It's actually part of our mission statement here, isn't it? Helping people to know and love and become like Jesus Christ. So this question, who is Jesus, is perhaps the most question there is, and it demands an answer. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to wrestle with this question. Who is Jesus? And I want you to hear the gospel, too. The good news that we've been talking about today. That Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And all things were created through him. But all mankind has sinned and fallen short of his glory. Christ came into his creation as a human being to live the perfect life that none of us could ever live. And to die the sinner's death that we all deserve. So that by faith alone in him we can have the righteousness and the salvation that he came to deliver. Here's how Apostle Paul, again, he says it in Colossians chapter 1. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, 
stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. This is the faith I desire you to have. And you can try to ignore the question or brush it off, but the fact is you must settle the question, who is this Jesus? This is who the Bible says he is. He's the son of God, the promised king, the one who came to save his people from their sins. Will you place your faith in Jesus Christ for full forgiveness and abundant and eternal life? Jesus wants you to know the answer to this important question because he wants you to know him. And this is true for all of us today. Jesus Christ wants us to know him. How do we know him? Well, what was true for the people of that day is still true for us. We don't know Jesus by simply measuring him against our own personal expectations. And we don't know Jesus by simply following a crowd. Jesus wants people to truly know him and to truly follow him. So how do we learn who Jesus Christ is and what he desires for us? How do we know him? Well, he has revealed himself to us through his word. We know Jesus from the Bible. Perhaps you've noticed today that all of Scripture, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, has Jesus Christ at the center of it. Jesus is present from creation to revelation. The prophets foretell him. The psalmists proclaim him. The apostles preach him. We meet Jesus in the Bible. He is there. He is our king, and he wants us to know him. We can't settle for vague ideas of Jesus, or else we will ultimately make him out to be who we want him to be, and we will lose out on the greatness of who he truly is. So are you growing in your knowledge of Jesus? Through regularly taking in the word of God. Do you open the word in faith believing that it is God who is speaking to you? Revealing himself to you there. Are you reading scripture, memorizing it, meditating on its truths? Are you reading it prayerfully? Does the scripture form the heart of your conversations with God? Are you engaging the Bible in community, in Bible studies, in groups, in, home, in your home with your family? Are we all opening our eyes to see Christ and God's plan of salvation in all of Scripture? Jesus Christ has come to us. He wants us to know him. We know him through his word, the Bible. And I'm sure the guys on the preaching team would agree. Every time I've been preparing for a sermon, it's hard work, but Christ meets me there. I am growing to know and love and become like Jesus through the scripture. It is God's desire. 
Christ has sought us out. He has come to us. He has declared himself to be our king. He wants us to know who he is. Who is this Jesus? Well, I've got an audio clip. Here's how this preacher answers the question of who Jesus is. The Bible says my king is a seven-way king. He's a king of the Jews. That's a racial king. He's a king of Israel. That's a national king. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. Well, I wonder do you know him? David said, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the fundament soweth his handiwork. My king uh, is, a, is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his soulless supplies. No barrier can hinder him from pouring out his blessings. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands in the solitude of himself. He's august and he's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He is the supreme problem in high criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He is the cardinal necessity for spiritual religion. He's the miracle of the age. He's, he, yes, he is. He is the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. Well, Mr. my king, he is a key. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his office is manifold. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous, and his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. Uh, I wish I could describe him to you, but he's in this. 
our king. Do you know him? Let's desire to know this Jesus more and more and more to know him and to love him. And as we grow to know Jesus more, may the reality of who Christ is move us to welcome him into our lives every single day like it's Palm Sunday. With rejoicing and with submission to our King, Christ humbled himself in order to be our Savior, and he rose again in victory. He sought us out and has taken the initiative to enter into our lives. Just like the people on Palm Sunday laid their cloaks before him in a show of submission, can we welcome him into our lives day by day, submitting ourselves to him and his kingship? Just as the people were shouting for joy because their Messiah had come, can we live each day with the same joy because our Savior has come to us? Let's approach every day more like Palm Sunday, welcoming Jesus into our lives, rejoicing grateful for who he is and for all that he has done for us. And let's keep welcoming him in this way, into our hearts, into our lives, day by day by day until the great final victory celebration when he returns in all of his power and glory. 2016 in Chicago will be nothing compared to that day. When our champion returns, our king returns, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. National king. He's the king.